This is a Federal News Network podcast. As more and more attention gets paid to the environmental hazards of PFAS and PFOS chemicals, especially in drinking water, Congress is considering several different approaches to remediate the problem. One of them that's already passed the House would use the Environmental Protection Agency's existing Superfund program to regulate the contaminants and order cleanups. And while the approach might seem fairly straightforward, our next guest argues it's more likely to lead to years of litigation than actual environmental cleanup. Philip Camella leads the Environment and Energy Practice Group at the law firm Freeborn and Peters. He wrote an article a few weeks back arguing that Superfund is the wrong tool for the job, and he joins us now. And Phil, thanks for doing this. I think the most logical place to start is if you could give our, our listeners a, a real quick 101 intro into how Superfund actually works and, and what sorts of environmental remediation problems it was actually designed for. Okay, so... Superfund had its uh, origin classically in Love Canal, and Love Canal sort of stands as the as the birthplace for Superfund, and that is really the type of hazardous waste site where there is not a responsible owner or operator. Before RICRA was passed in 1980, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Uh, there was no financial mechanism or financial assurance for owners and operators of hazardous waste sites to pay for their own cleanups. After RICA was passed, the approach was to permit these operating hazardous waste facilities. Part of the permit was, it still is, you have to show financial wherewithal to clean up your releases and to safely close your facility. So Superfund was designed to attack those types of hazardous waste facilities for where there was not a responsible owner. And therefore, Congress set the standards and the elements for the cleanups as broad as possible. Any facility where hazardous substances appear, owners, former owners, current owners, transporters, generators, arrangers, And most importantly, I think for PFAS, is there is no concentration threshold for what a hazardous substance is on the Superfund. So if you could imagine a company that contributed only a de minimis amount of chemicals to a Superfund site, they're still in the game. They're still exposed to this joint and several liability, joint and several liability being one of the notorious additional elements of Superfund, where any contributor is potentially responsible for the entire cleanup. So the bottom line is that Superfund was really intended as a way to gather um, uh, pocketbooks to pay for the cleanup of these old hazardous waste sites. And I, I think that when you consider the statutes 41 years old now, I think it, it's time, in my opinion, to have a different approach to something like PFAS. And to make this concrete for people, if you actually applied the Superfund scheme to the PFAS problem and PFAS problem, what what sorts of range of responsible parties could potentially get roped into it? Well, that's that's really a lot of the problem because I don't think that we know what the limit is to the range of potential companies. PFAS has been found in rainwater. It's been found in public uh, water supplies. It's been find, found in soil, septic tanks. So, so the question might not be 
who might be roped in, but the question would be who would not be roped in. Uh, if you consider the ubiquity of things like um, popcorn bags, Post-Its, uh, Gore-Tex, Teflon, stain-resistant fabric coating, uh, firefighting foam, it goes on and on and on. Um, it would be very difficult to determine who would not be roped in. And that's a lot of the problem. Where, where do you draw the line between those folks that we should be targeting our environmental resources towards and those which, which are background or those which are just part of American industry that should not be the, the focal point of our environmental enforcement efforts? Let me just raise the example of of one of the most prominent areas where people will have heard of the PFAS problem, which is on military bases, where over the years, um, military firefighters have used PFAS-containing um, firefighting foam in, in an aviation setting. In that case, I mean, the logical answer is probably the U.S. military is probably the only responsible party there, and it's it's impacting military families and other people on that base and pretty much nowhere else. Under a Superfund scheme as you were saying, would other other parties potentially get tagged as responsible beyond the military itself? The, the answer is probably no, unless there were other contributors to the contamination. And it's something like you mentioned, where you have a contained operation owned, operated by the military, then that would be an occasion where that's a self-contained contamination site. But the question is, why do you need Superfund to make the government clean up the site. Why don't you just pass a law that says the military shall clean up PFAS to 100 parts per trillion or whatever the, the risk level is? Why use such a cumbersome statute to attack a problem that is pretty streamlined and pretty well-defined? So if Superfund is not the right tool for this, what what's another approach that you think would make sense? Well, I, I think the best model uh, and I put this in my article, but I, I think I think the best model that's really been successful are state voluntary cleanup programs, because in order to to wisely spend cleanup dollars, I think two things are needed. You have to have a trigger level where the decision is made. This contamination is bad enough and it might affect people who are close to this contamination such that this level should be cleaned up. Example would be Flint, Michigan, 15 parts per billion of lead in drinking water. That's too high. Clean it up. Then after you have that trigger press, the question is, what is the cleanup level or the or how clean is clean? The state voluntary programs are very good at attacking that issue. So if there was a statute that simply said for each environmental media, soil, air, surface water, groundwater, here are the cleanup levels. If you have exposure pathways to people within the scope of the risk that this media poses, here are the cleanup levels. Now go out and meet the cleanup levels. And it could be voluntary. It could be, it could be used for enforcement. It would be more of a cooperative approach where instead of engaging in enforcement lawsuits, you're telling um, the American industry and, and American commerce, this is what we consider to be clean. These are the tools that you can use to address your contamination and meet levels that are scientifically considered safe. So I, I think the state volunteer programs provide a really good sort of model. 
I also think that listing uh, PFAS as the characteristic hazardous waste under RICRA is, a good, is probably a good idea. So and, those are the two key things. Yeah, and, and just to be clear on, just so I'm clear on what the difference between the approach you just outlined and the Superfund approach would be, and the reason we're talking about this is Congress is looking at legislating this uh, uh, Superfund applied to PFAS. Under, under the Superfund approach, any detectable level of the chemical would trigger a need to remove it anyone with any connection to that chemical would be potentially responsible financially for removing it. And right. and EPA really doesn't have a ton of discretion to decide, is this a problem on this site? Is that about right? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that is, I think that is correct. And so what happens in Superfund is that the equity comes in at the end of the process. The question is, what's a fair allocation of the cost of cleanup that comes in at the end of the process in the beginning of the process epa or private private plaintiff is only interested in roping in as many responsible parties as possible so so they have a full room from which to find people to pay for the cleanup and you're right with the low detection levels for pfos at parts per trillion parts per trillion with no concentration threshold with virtually no defenses to Superfund, and with no uh, objective cleanup standard, sort of a case by case, and with the vast number of potentially responsible parties. I think that uh, this will be a, a boon for lawyers. A lot of lawyers probably hope that it's listed as a hazardous substance, because I read one article where it says, uh, you know, something like, you know, listing uh, PFAS as a hazardous substance will bring the fund back to Superfund, because it will open the floodgates all over again. But what happens in that scenario, it sounds good on one level, but you wind up spending all these dollars on transaction costs. And, and uh, for some folks, that might be good, but for remediating the environment of PFAS, that's probably not a good idea. That's Philip Camella, an attorney at Freeborn and Peters, where he leads that firm's Environment and Energy Practice Group. We'll post a link to the article he wrote earlier this month on PFAS and Superfund at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO 
where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. 
what a wonderful way to to spend an assignment with uh, with backup and and guidance like that. What what great great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.